everybody. We are back. Welcome to another episode of More Than the Title. I'm your host, as usual, Jared Thomas, Chief Revenue Officer at Outside the Box Digital. And you know, I got my brother, my brethren, your favorite CEO's favorite CEO, Chadio. What's good, baby? And I got it right. I got it. <laughs> I got it. I'd be like, he's over there. <laughs> he's over there. <laughs> Happy to be here. Happy to be here. You know, I'm hooded up. Listen, I'm sick. I'm hoodied up today, man. It's hoodie season, man. Hoodie I gotta, season. I got, I got a dress for the weather. It's hoodie season. I'm hoodied up today. <laughs> That's it, baby. That's it. You know, we're going to rock before we, you know, That's we always right. got an awesome episode planned yep. for y'all guys. And, and before we introduce this amazing guest, quick house cleaning items. First, yep. shout out to y'all, the listeners, the subscribers, the followers. We're growing and glowing across every single platform is because y'all, y'all love and y'all support the, the positive comments, the feedback. Yeah, we appreciate y'all and, and really appreciate it from the bottom of our heart. So thank you to y'all. Yeah, yeah, the, the support has been real, Jared. Man, we can't Crazy. thank y'all enough, man. Just to just to give y'all some insight on the kind of support that you guys have given us, um, we're at like a hundred and ten thousand views on YouTube in under four months. I that's mean, it. that is that that's is it. just that's just that's amazing. It. Hold on, let me get a little come on, man. You know, <laughs> <laughs> hey, run it, run it. <laughs> yeah, man. thousand plus views on YouTube. In under four months, and it couldn't have been done without the viewers. So once again, we sincerely thank you guys for all the support, uh, the likes, the comments, whether good or bad, we don't care. If you're taking time to look at our stuff, to comment on it, we appreciate you anyway. You understand what I'm saying? That's so we're not going to be like, we only like the, you know, the positive shit. We'll take the negative shit too, because we like to comment back and we'll, let's, let's have a discussion. You ain't popping if you ain't got haters. So clearly we popping, y'all. We on it, y'all. So you already know. And also shout out to our distribution partners, the Live yep. Podcast Network, the first woman-owned, black-owned podcast network. So if you want more content from black creators like more than the title, make sure you download the app. Make sure you support the team. And yep. also shout out to our executive producers, Real Block Films. Make sure y'all go to YouTube. Make sure y'all see the Love Film. It's on American New App, which is Dame Dash App. They're doing a lot of big things, and they rocking with you know more than title, baby. Shout Listen, out to my guys. They, I think I think within the first couple of days or something like that, I think they're over like twenty thousand views in the first couple Easy. of days. So shout out the Real Block, man. Dave and and and, and you guys, man. You guys are doing your thing. You know, you know the movie is amazing, man. Congratulations to our to our partners, man. Y'all doing your thing, man. We out here working. That's what that means, man. We out here working. That's it, man. With that being said, you know what we let's start the show. Get it rocking, man. So this brother right here, man, this is an amazing brother, man. We actually had uh, one of our guests hit us up and say, "Yo, shout to my brother Haji." He said, "Man, you gotta have this brother on." I yep. worked with him, man. He's solid, and, and you know, once reading his story, I'm like, "Oh no, nah, man, this is this was." We have to, man. So this is for the culture right here. This brother was born in the English village of Bristol to parents hailing from Barbados and the sunny Caribbean. He landed his first advertising job at Ogilvy and Mather, where he worked on Merrick, Kraft, Post, Singrams, Hardy's, and American Express businesses. After frustration with the lack of diversity in the general market, he migrated to Multicultural Marketing and Uniworld Group. In his tenure with them, he worked on efforts for Bank of America, Pepsi, AT&T, AstraZeneca, Motorola, you mm -hmm. name them, and also was the group creative director of their Colgate Palmolive and four businesses. After becoming the CCO at Footsteps, he continued to work in the multicultural arena uh, and worked on brand tone and voice for Lowe's, Gillette, Diageo, Infinity, Visa, PNC Bank, mm. also other brands like Spectrum, Clorox, Nike, Hallmark, Mahogany. Get it. Get it. Woo, we can keep going. Get it. And the Get list him. goes on. 
Get him. Come on, you stop creeping, man. He recently accepted the title of GCD at VaynerMedia NYC office on their American Eagle and Express Brands account, deepening robust customer relationships in social. Let's introduce this amazing brother, Mr. David Pilgrim, man. Let's go, baby. Where's my, where's my, where's my girl? That's it, man. Oh, it's a pleasure, man. Welcome Yo, to the man. show, brother. Welcome to the show, Dave. My pleasure, man. My pleasure. I want to say something. Dave has one of the most amazing complexions, but he has that like perfect suntan complexion. When he said you were Caribbean, I just looked at you like, yeah, you got that perfect fucking sun. You know what I mean? What can I say? What can I say, man? The, the gene pool is strong. <laughs> Welcome to the show, brother. Man, it's great to be here, man. Yeah. And and shout out to Haji as well. Yeah. Haji is Haji is a supremely talented brother, man. And yeah. who we worked together. I think I met him at Uniworld. This is nearly twenty years ago, probably yeah. around that time. And yeah. and he is he has always been a person who has crusaded quietly for the business yeah. and for and for people of color in the business. Um, and sometimes at great risk to himself, he he published a book years ago mm. that was a tell all about being black in the business. This would have been again in the early 2000s. And um, he he got a lot of flack for that book, but he he was critical. He was he was critical as much of the world around multicultural agencies as the agencies themselves. So mm. he, he it was an equal opportunity uh, um, look at the agents at the at the industry and you know and he continues to do that work to this day. If you if you follow him on LinkedIn, you're you're getting the science on on how it feels to be a black creative in this business yeah. at this moment. Absolutely. He's fighting a good fight, man. Shout I love Haji, man. man. I love Haji, man. Uh you know, he is he is definitely one of our warriors. 100%. 100%. Definitely a warrior for the culture, man. Salute to Haji. And let me tell you something, Dave, and we've all experienced this, so I know you're going to appreciate this, right? You know, you can always be at a job where a motherfucker got a lot of shit to say about you in a negative space. But it is very refreshing when you have a colleague that, like you said, that you worked with Haji two decades ago. Yeah. Two decades ago. And this man still speaks and holds you at this type of high regard. It showed you the type of impact that you had on him. And it showed you the caliber of person that he is, that he didn't even forget that. And still to this day, he sings your praises. So it's crazy. Man. I mean, I mean, the thing is, the way the business goes, and, and I think that's pertinent to our discussion, is that yep. there are not a lot of black folks in the business, right? Absolutely. So when you when you meet them, you, you meet in fellow unicorns, yep. and you tend to lock in and get um, relationships early on. And he and I have worked together about two or three times since that at different agencies. Okay. So, wow. so, so even though the 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 tenure of how long I've known him is long, the fact that you would bounce up this, the person again is a, is is a regular occurrence because if you want to talk to black people, they're only a. I mean, I would dare say that we constitute probably less than five percent of the industry, right? Five. Message. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you know you're gonna see the same people over and over. You yeah. know. Yeah. So that's how it yeah. goes. So, but I, th I think that's a perfect segue, brother, because, um, you know, obviously you come from the Caribbean, you, you moved to the U.S., right? Or were you born in the Caribbean? Um, I was I was born in England. I was born in, in Bristol, England. My, my mother and my mother was studying there at the time because okay. at the time um, Barbados had just finished being a colony. We just became independent from Britain. Right. Okay. And, and a lot of people from the Caribbean were going to Britain to further their education if they could make it. And my mother was a French teacher. She was there studying and she had me there. And then I went back to Barbados before I was a year old. So I, I read Barbados really as the place where I come from. Okay. But I was technically born in England. So I've never lived in England for any length of time. I've been there on vacation and been back a few times to work. But 
but um, I rap Barbados really. So you identify as a Bayesian. I'm a hell Bayesian. yes. Bayesian to the bone. Bayesian to the bone. Okay, look. So, no for a non, for a non, you know, uh, guy from the Caribbean, I, you know, this is a big debate. Is it Caribbean or is it the Caribbean? How, how do we pronounce it? The, the the pronunciation Caribbean is an American construct. Everybody okay, so, else in the world says Caribbean. Right? Okay, so are but both because correct? both are technically both are technically correct. Okay, but but America but Caribbean is is um is an American construct. Tell you what, gotcha. the word Caribbean, right, mm. is based on the Caribs who were the people who were there before colonization. Mm. Right? Okay. So okay. because the Caribs were there, it's Caribbean. Gotcha. Makes just sense. like typical American shit. We, we take some <laughs> shit wrong and make it right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because <laughs> we you shape know, it in our image. You, hear, you know, you hear things so much that you adopt, you know, you learn as you hear. Yeah, and yeah. I've always wondered that because I know, like in America, everybody like the Caribbean, Caribbean. Then when I, you know, by me being, I went to Barbados. They say, you know, the Caribbean. Caribbean. So I'm like, Caribbean. well, which one is it? You know what I mean? But you know, obviously, his, your story makes absolute sense. So shout out to America, like Jared said, for just taking some <laughs> shit in <and> being bullied. <laughs> yeah, motherfucker. What the fuck you want it to be? Yeah, it works. It's good. It's cool when they do it. It's a problem when I do it. <laughs> That's a, that should be our theme song for the country. <laughs> okay, so so you grew up in Eng so you were born in England, um, but you, I grew you know, up in the Caribbean. Yeah, uh, grew up in the Caribbean. So. Let me start off by saying this of what we know of most uh Caribbean culture. Um, the man is raised to be the the provider, right? Yeah. Were you raised in so you know, because in, in, in American culture, it's a little different. I know in more you know Caribbean cultures, the man is raised to be the provider, and it's kind of instilled in you that you know this is the path you should take. Um, you know, and whatever and whatever um how you say like um um like whatever job you're seeking out, you should you should you know find a job that you can just like be the provider and take care of your family. Were, were you raised in that kind of like um, economic? Um, uh, I was well, well, I would say that in certain ways my family was typical, in certain ways atypical. Um, okay, it was typical in the in the sense that like my grandfather was um, an agriculturalist, right? So he he worked on a plantation. He, a plantation. he literally ran a plantation for the government. Mm -hmm. Right. By that time, of course, you know. Um, the government had kind of taken over. Again, like I said, Barbados had just become independent, right? Mm -hmm. Not not too long before he was born. And um, so basically what happened, black people had taken over now from the colonial rulers and we started a new chapter, right? My parents were both teachers. So because of that, my father taught history, my mother taught French. Even though it was a traditional Caribbean household, the, them being teachers, they understood children and they also were in a position to kind of show you different options, right? Okay. And because they were because they were teachers, like when we sat down at the dinner table, we would talk about what it was like to be at school. They were a lot more connected and closer to us emotionally than most Caribbean parents, I would venture, right? Because quite often, as you, to your point, like you know, the daddy is the daddy, and he, he right. brings only bacon, right. does his thing. He don't right. really hug the boys too much. He was too boys. Yeah. Don't really hug the boy, you know, get him a punch, you know. Get him, yeah, you know, he uh, come home, he tired. Yeah, get through, get through. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, oh, let me eat my food home. and go to bed. That's it. That's it. Although <laughs> the truth is, my, my dad would come home and the first thing he did was to go to bed, and take a nap. Yeah, so right. it's typical in that sense. Yeah. But my mother in particular realized that I, I was a kid who drew from day one, right? Okay. So they gave me like people would bring me gifts and I would play with the paper. Mm -hmm. I and so so basically by the time I was about 12. I had a marker collection 
that was as tall as the bookshelf behind me here, right? right. Like I just hung on to all those. I painted, I drew incessantly. And right. and and I was like a kind of a nerdy kid who kind of took care of all that. I mean, I still I still my brother played basketball and, and played basketball, soccer, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But I was the kid who always drew and like, you know, drew pictures for, for brothers at school. Like anything anybody wanted, anything drawn, posters made, blah, blah, blah. I was the kid who they came to. Right. Um to, to segue it then into how I ended up in the States, mm. right? My mother again said, listen, the kid has only ever drawn since day one. What can we do to, to keep him on that path? Okay. Because I was okay at math and okay at, because uh, normally what would happen, right, is your parents would want you to, to be just like here, like lawyer, doctor, yeah. that kind of thing, right? Those very kind of traditional and very kind of conservative pathways. Um, but my mother in particular, because she realized that I had the talent, said, okay, good. We're going to do whatever we can to keep him on this path. And they mortgaged the house, basically, to send me to Pratt Institute here in Brooklyn. Okay. Right? Right. Yeah, Pratt, I, Pratt is a big art institute. Yeah, Pratt is a big art, big art institute. institute. One of, one, there are probably about three or four of them in the New York area. Yeah. It's one of the top four. Yeah, it's expensive, right? too. It's not It's not a... a very cool, expensive. Very expensive. I mean, and that's yeah. why I say they mortgaged the house and yeah. basically paid for me to go yeah. for the first year. Mm -hmm. I... I, but thank God, when I landed and had my first few classes, when I had my first midterms, I was in the top 5%, right? Mm. So luckily, my skill was at that level, right? Yeah. Mm. Well, not luckily, because I had put in the 10,000 hours yeah, You've been, you been, you been drawing since you was a drawing kid. all day one. So, so, yeah. so then I was in the top few, and I, 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 I made sure I won a scholarship. Then I, I, I applied for a couple of scholarships and won one. Nice. That paid for my second year. Mm -hmm. Then... When I then I applied for the RA position, the resident assistant, resident at, assistant. The, at the dorms. Mm -hmm. So then my accommodation was free. Nice. So mm -hmm. so the accommodation free, second year, first and second year paid, and then proceeded to keep the GPA high up so I could maintain the grades and keep the scholarship. So busted my ass basically to make sure I got through the four year thing. But that's the immigrant, that's the immigrant complex. You're not going home in shame. You ain't come all this fucking way to the fucking states to do your thing. <laughs> You're not going. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, you, you come in and you're gonna try and fucking succeed while yeah. you're here. That's that's the mission, right? That's real. And even the, the pressure, like you said, your, your parents mortgaged the house. Yep, you could easily exactly. went out there, bullshit. You could have seen another little, little shorty or something. You could have skipped a few classes, man. But but you stayed through, you persevered through it. You, you had to do it, laser like, focused. Actually, that, they, they, that, one of my last expensive, but the fucking supplies, their art supplies, they that's go what I'm saying. Company, they go to a store called Blick. Yes, which, which is which is one of the biggest art supply stores for schools like that. Yo, them fucking markers, bro. Holy markers, shit. one marker, pants, like the certain graphite pens and weighted. Yep. Holy shit, yep. yo, they're fucking. You think books are expensive? They would have to buy books and these art supplies, That's easels right. and fucking. That's right. Oh my god, all of it, all yeah. of it. Yeah, so, yeah, so, you, so you had to be on top of it, and, and had to manage your money tight. Absolutely. And then, like like my last, I remember my last week in Barbados. What happens is that. When you're when you're sending your child away, right? Yeah. The central bank has to cut a check for that first mm. check that goes to the college because any big money leaving the island, the central bank needs to know. So he oh, had to go oh, to the central oh. bank and get permission to get send this money off. And the and the guy who was dealing with my case at the bank told my father, "So what? what you're sending your child away. What? What are you sending him to go and do?" And my father said, "You're going to art school." And the man was like, "You're gonna waste your money sending the child to art school. You should wow. send him to should send him to medical school. You no, know, wow. send him to be a lawyer." Wow. So like the whole prevalent, the prevalent thing, the, it's a very, it's, it's a very small society. Like, yeah. you know, it gets a lot of play now because Rihanna is big, but Barbados is 166 square miles. It's yeah. smaller than Brooklyn. Yeah. 
Everybody knows your name. It, people, if I go to Barbados and say my last name is Pilgrim, they know who my brother is. They know who my mother is. They know who my father is, right? So people, if there's a philosophy that has taken root that's conservative, everybody adopts it, right? Mm. It's a very small society. So, so I'm not I'm not mad at them for thinking that, but right. that's the environment in which you're coming. So that if you make an again, that's the pressure when you land here as an immigrant. Then, yeah, I'm not letting that motherfucker in the bank. No. He will never, he will never see me fall. He must never see me fall. Right. Because I'm not having anybody talk about me like that before I leave and then get the pleasure of saying, well, my father wasted his money. So you get here and you dig in. And New York was, and the other thing too, man, like yeah. New York, this is, I landed here in 80, I can date myself with this, but I landed here in 85, right? Mm -hmm. So like hip hop is popping off, like yeah. popping the fuck off. And the whole culture is beginning, like black people are, are surging into the whole hip hop space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was just such an exciting time to be here. So at, on one hand, you're learning the stuff at Pratt that is the straightforward kind of graphic design stuff that you're hearing about. Meanwhile, the fucking trains are covered in graffiti. Yeah. And the music is mm -hmm. booming from the systems at the same time. I mean, I remember hearing like Eric B and Rakim dropped the year I, I landed. And I just, I had never heard shit like that. I come in from <laughs> reggae and soca. <laughs> you're right here in the... <laughs> it, was yeah. crazy. it was crazy and all of that stuff then impacted the work you did yeah yeah, yeah. And you're kind of learning the fundamentals but mm -hmm. at the same, as an artist you're trying to remain as open as possible yeah. as the culture in a, in a visceral way it's literally hitting you from all sides and you just have to synthesize all of that and keep it moving forward yeah yeah, that's, that's real, dope. Man. Yeah, that's super dope. What, man. what parish are you from? And uh, I'm from St. Michael, which is near Bridgetown, I, I know, the capital. Yep, yep. I know yeah. it's that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we, we. Uh, I went to Barbados. I think two or three years ago for my birthday. First time there. I booked a trip like three days before my birthday, just on some like I needed somewhere to go because normally I go out the country. And mm -hmm. I, I'm telling you right now, and I'm, I'm not being funny. It was one of the best trips I've ever taken. Like I love mm -hmm. Barbados. I, your I'm job. Glad. But yo, the people are so fucking friendly. The food is absolutely fucking amazing. I forget uh what parish has that um stage that they do the concerts every Friday. Oysters, oysters, it's Christchurch, it's Christchurch. Right away. The place oh, is that man. small. The place is that small. If you if you say oh the stage, okay, it's gonna be oysters. There's only two. <laughs> you so know, you know that's, that's, that so, Jared, so that's where you are. It's like a fucking 42nd street, nothing but seafood restaurant. That's right, stuff, man. And you know, the, like I said, the people are just so so friendly out there, man. It's such a beautiful island. And, and, and top-rated beaches, you know, man. Like I grew no. up, I grew up and took the shit for granted. Yeah, I, yeah. I, and then when I came to New York, I saw what beaches were. I was like, what? <laughs> you came to Orchard? Wait, what, what beach you went to? Went to Orchard Beach? <laughs> no, I went. I went to uh, Reese Beach. I went, that was the one I went to. I was like, <laughs> oh, what? That's, that's Don't tame. go to Orchard. Don't go to Orchard. <laughs> You'll never go to a beach again. <laughs> like, it'd be a condom. It'd be a <laughs> <laughs> needles. I'm still fucking traumatized. <laughs> Orchard, Orchard Beach looks like those underground. You know the underground caves and and uh. The caves that they take you through for the um the excursions in Barbados. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. train goes through with the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what Orchard Beach looks like. That's oh my like, god. Like 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 god. Like <laughs> Katrina water, no hurricane. Ridiculous shit. I hate it. Get your strapped to caucus. Yeah. <laughs> you be scared to put your fucking foot in the water. That water green. Oh, I'm right now. Barbados water, clear as blue, you know, Caribbean water, blue, mm -hmm. clear. You 100%. can damn near see through it. Mm -hmm. Fucking Orchard Beach water is seaweed green. I'm telling you right now. We've never seen blue water in Orchard. I've never seen my toes in that water. <laughs> never in my life. 35. 
<laughs> so you want to see a dead body? <laughs> <laughs> you never know. It's, it's yeah, crazy man. out there, bro. Yeah, but yeah. Wait, so, so after graduating, bro, so, so tell us, man, uh, give us a little insight into how you got into the industry, man, how you got so, that first opportunity. So here it is now. Right? Yeah. So um, so four years um, and pr- had a placement program. So so if, so if at the end of it, you would kind of go to the placement program and tell them what your major was. And I majored in graphic design. Okay. Even Like I kind of came there as a fine arts Okay. You know, major, but then over time, and plus, again, this is the practical part of my my parents and being from Barbados. My mother said, "Well, you gotta have a trade where you can make some money." Yeah, yeah. We sending you to go and do the art, but do something where you got a trade where you're gonna make some money, and take care of yourself, right? Yeah. So I go and hit the placement office, and um, and this is not bragging again. Like I said, I had to maintain the scholarship, so I was near the top of my class in terms of the GPA thing. So I didn't, I wasn't worrying about that, but um. I went through the summer after my graduation. No one was biting at all. And then I got a placement call. I got a, a call for um, an interview from Ogilvy and Maver here in New York. For those who don't know, O&M is one of the largest firms in advertising. It's a worldwide agency. But more than that, its founder, David Ogilvy, was one of the founders of the business. He was a salesperson who, did, who kind of conceived what modern advertising was. And he wrote a book called Ogilvy on Advertising, which basically describes what advertising was and how, I mean, it's a very dated book if you read it now, but at the time when he wrote it, it was pretty much the Bible on how advertising could work, right? So he founded that agency, I believe, sometime in like, that's probably the 40s or the 50s, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. But they called me for an interview. I went in and... um, (laughs) <laughs> I don't want to make it into a racial thing per se, but there were racial dynamics partially at work. My my book was enough to get me through the door, hundred percent. Um, mm. but the but the creative director I was who was hiring me, um, was was a white South African mm. who was a really 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 nice guy, but who had realized that Ogilvy in New York at the time was not diverse at all, right? Yeah. And just to me, out of a kind of a, he had an, a kind of a impish nature. And he was like, you know what? Let's get some brown people up in here and shake this place up. Mm. And do it. Because like, I know that there were a couple of other people in my class who were up for that same job. But I got it. Mm. I feel that because I was brown, I got the job. Right? Wow. Um, and, but again, qualifications. I met the qualifications. But I think that he purposely wanted to kind of stir the waters up there. Because he he knew how homogeneous it was, at the time when I got there, really and truly, like it, you know, it was it was like it was like working. It was as if James Bond. It was a mixture of James Bond and an advertising agency, meaning that a lot of the guys who were art directors came to came to work, dressed in either suits, with like loafers, and they wore ties. And these are these are the creative dudes, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. and. All the women were dressed in all black, like that New York style, that kind of thing. And but there were no black people there at all. I was the only one, and I was extremely junior. Mm-hmm. And so, like that was a fairly big shift, right? To come again to come from Barbados and to be jumping into this, but is one of the top agencies in the world. So you know, I sucked up the experience. Um, and the first year, this is again, this is the late eighties, early nineties. We're not digital yet. I had to learn all the craft of stuff by hand. I had to learn. I mean, I knew it from partially from college, but the whole typography thing. Yeah. Um, photography, you really had to you had to work with photographers. I I would I would assist um my creative director and go on shoots with him. Yeah. 
watch how the shoots were done. Um, lab about how the, the photos were supposed to be processed. Yeah, yeah. Build in those days to do presentations, you had to build the presentations by hand. So I get images by hand, cut those up, get the copy, cut it up, assemble it, show it. You learn of how ads and communication are built in a really granular way, in a way that we we don't know because the computer takes care of a lot of that. So there's so, but I learned traditional what is now called traditional in that way. And then when it later on when it came for on TV stuff, I would go to the shoots and shoot with people. And so like. One of my first spots that I did, I, I posted on LinkedIn about it recently. It was a spot for Hershey's chocolate mm-hmm. that featured the director who was who did CNC Music Factory Line. You know, things that make you go home, you know, mm, you yeah. know that song? Yeah, yeah. He was the first director I ever worked with, a guy um, called uh, Marcus. It's not, it's Marcus Nispel was his name. He's a German guy. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but basically the whole point was that young kids in a chocolate factory but this is 1989 and i told the client that like the only way to have it resonate is you're going to have to lean into hip-hop now think about it right like eric b and rakim only came out like two or three years before three four years before and these guys in connecticut in hershey you know in hershey pennsylvania yeah. have, have never even heard of hip-hop their kids are not listening to it yet yeah so i had to i had to go in and sell hip-hop to these people and so I, I basically did, I cut my own reel together from Video Music Box. <laughs> the Rob <laughs> McDaniels, right? McDaniels. Rob McDaniels. <laughs> had to put like, because at that time, remember, hip hop is not mainstream yeah, yet. Yeah, 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 so yeah. I had to find, like, I had to go and find the little off-brand cable shows that were showing hip hop and get a reel cut off of this. I had to get the closest thing in that they would, could understand was Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation, right? Mm. Because it had the choreography of, yeah. of what the kids could look like dancing yeah. and stuff like that. And and then, you know, you had to bring in one or two kind of sellout, kind of semi-hip-hop thing. Not sellout, but like, you would bring in like things that, well, it was the song of things that made you go home by um, Young MC. Because that sounded a little more palatable to them. They may have heard it. Yeah. But basically, you had to spend the whole time selling what hip-hop was. And right. selling to them that hip-hop was not a fad. Because at the time, the perception was that hip-hop was going to be a fad and was going to die out within the next five years, right? Mm, yeah. So did that. They bought it. Then I got, um, I, I had a friend, um, Salam Remy, who did all of um, Nas's hits, right? Producer yeah. for Nas. A couple other people. Um, Amy Winehouse, various people. Yeah. And I went to him and he did the track, right? Salam's so, been around a long time. A long time. Long, long, long time. His dad was a producer before him. Yeah, his dad did Orange Juice Jones. So he's two, he's two generations deep yeah. in terms of yeah. the whole production end. Yeah. But got him to do the actual track. And so, like, if you look at the, if you look at the, the commercial now, so we got the, 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 the director who was doing probably the, the hottest kind of pop hip hop video at the time, and then we got Salam to do the track. And between the two things, it still feels bona fide. Like it didn't feel like we were faking it for Hershey, right? right. Which I thought was really important. And which, and which to me was a testament to the fact that I was in the room. Because I knew Ogilvy at the time could not do work that felt like that. Right. Yeah. So, so that was the first, that was that was within my first year or two of working in the industry. It took me a while. You had to do a, a year of apprenticeship at Ogilvy before you even got to make anything yourself. They wouldn't let you, they wouldn't let you have your own shoot. But once you did, they would throw the whole might of the production company, the production company that they had internally behind it, 
they had lots of pull. They could pay and get anybody you wanted to edit, whatever, whatever, whatever. Everything was done um, bona fide. So that's that was great. a great experience. Shout, shout out to you, man. First of all, for, for pitching hip hop and stepping outside the box, man. That's the name of our company, Outside the Box. So you went into Hershey and said, yo, hip hop is going to be a thing. Um, they bought it, right? Because you, you, you pitched it, you sold them on it. What was the results of that campaign? And what well, happened at, afterward as a result of your career? Well, at the, at the time, you have to remember, this is pre-digital, right? Yeah. So yeah. the notion of metrics is There's not no metrics. force. There were no metrics. It was that either it did well or it didn't. So what, what they used to watch was how how the commercial performed in terms of wear out. So what that means is this. Okay. Like, so on Saturday, at that time, Saturday morning cartoons, for example, were really exactly. big. Right? Yeah. So you would put your commercials in that and you would run the commercial and run it and run it and run it and run it. And if it wore out, that meant that that people were like people would request it kind of or okay. say that they liked it. But it was like people writing letters back. It was it was like it was just a kind of a guesswork thing. A lot of it. Right. And actually, we got some negative letters. We got some negative letters from some people who said, you can't believe that there are black people in the ads for her. She it needs to stop. But to oh. her, she's credit. They dug in and said, "No, no, no. We think this is right. We're gonna, we're gonna go with it." But honestly, it was, it was, it was, a, it was kind of crazy for a minute. So, it, but to answer your question directly, it ran for a, a couple months and then it wore out, which told us that it was actually doing well. Because yeah. if they want to run it a lot, that means people like it. Yeah, exactly. And for but those they, listening, they, like the yeah, amount of investment that you put in, you might put in five hundred a million to the ad, right? You only have a a week or two of shelf life on on the distribution in terms of the network cable. You know, what I mean, that's a that's a loss of ROI. But if it continues to play, just like content, me and Chap invest a million dollars a piece of content. If it goes in for two years, that's a good damn investment, right? Because it keeps on living. exactly. And if, and, and if you're noticing a lift in the stores, because yeah. what it was, I, sh- I should mention this. It was the it was the pure Hershey bar, right? With nothing with nothing in it, no nuts. And they were going up against Snickers and other bars that had things to eat within the chocolate bar itself and mm. it had been popular at one stage and had fallen off yeah. so what they would also notice that if there was a lift in terms of demand for the bar itself that told you yeah, that no the commercial right. was working yeah but it's I, but it was kind of get more like guesswork and more just a good feeling how the hell did we make money back then stone age work that should sound crazy bro compared to today get, i don't want to get too far past this because you said something mm-hmm. and, and we me and jared make a point before we get too far past this, I gotta backtrack, David. Mm-hmm. Please, never again, <clears throat> never again, apologize for busting your ass to fucking make your family proud. Please, brother, if 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 you could ever do one thing, I'm asking you. Pratt is not a fucking school. Any school that you go to, grades are not giving out for free. I don't give a fuck if you go to a CUNY, a SUNY State Institute, a City Institute. You get the grade that you earn. So if you if you come and you know you came from a, 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 a an island and you're an immigrant to another country and you're there busting your fucking ass and you end up being at the top of your class, you don't fucking apologize for that. You're right. You're right about that. This is the mentality that they want us to develop, that mm-hmm. our hard work should not be celebrated. Fuck that. You bust your ass. You did what you had to do and you made your family proud to be able to say, you know, we are happy that we made that sacrifice to send our child, because it was a risk, it was a gamble. They yes. didn't know if this shit would work. They're spending their money, because Caribbean money is not equivalent a lot of times to America. That's right, we were, they would pay double. They would pay what in their, in their, in their, in their currency right. is double. You know what I mean? So, you know, for them to take that risk and for you to show them that you 
accepted the challenge and you mastered it, please never apologize for that again. Absolutely. As a badge of honor, say I went to Pratt and I fucking did that and I was the top of my class and this is what the fuck I accomplished because we need to celebrate our small... That's a small accomplishment, but it's also a big accomplishment at the same time. Yes, so you're you're hundred percent right. I mean, like you know what? Because you're right. We do have to model it, and I think. But, but I'll tell you the second piece about why that why I would even have taken that approach. Yeah, I we I, Barbados was a British colony, right? Right. And Britain's got this thing called the the Brits have this thing the, the stiff upper lip, which is like yeah. when you when you accomplish something, you don't boast about it. You don't want to seem boastful. Yeah. You don't want to seem, and it's and it doesn't make any sense. It's just yeah. this kind of thing that again I probably inherited from my colonial my post colonial upbringing. Yeah, we're like, and I, even in my career, sometimes they've been, and, and I think it's part of our discussion, which is that when you are the only black person in an organization, how do you speak up about yourself and for yourself? How do you advocate for yourself? And if you if you enter the room, to your point, about speaking humbly about what you do, as opposed to saying, "Well, I am at this level and I'm worthy of this." Yeah, how are you perceived? So it, you're you're hundred percent right. It's one of those things where, I mean, no matter where you are in your career. You have to work on these things. Yeah. Message. The only thing is Jared, Jared has been there. I'm telling you, Jared's been there. I've been there. You've been there. So we can be a triangle on this thing, right? Fuck perception. Let's just, let's keep it 100, Dave. You could walk in there with a suit and tie. You could walk in there with a fucking cowboy hat on and some boots. It doesn't matter. You walk in black, they're going to perceive you how they want to perceive you. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter how you're fucking dressed. They're going to perceive you how they want to perceive you before you even open your mouth, before they understand you're qualified, because that is what they do. Absolutely. We need to stop giving a fuck about what their perception is. I'm here to do a job. When I walk into these rooms, I'm telling you right now, it's not being boastful. I walk into these rooms. What do you need done? I don't pretend to be your friend. I'm not your friend. I'm not. We got to stop trying to play fucking friends. We're not friends. I'm here to do a job. What do you need me to do? Okay, this is what I can do. This is how I need to do it. Let's get it done together. You understand? But yeah. but we have to stop worrying about how they perceive us because we're going to waste so much energy. Like Jared used to say, yo, I used to have on a suit. I cut my fucking hair. You know what he's doing? He's worrying about the perception of what he looks like versus what the fuck he's accomplishing. Mm -hmm. What he looks mm -hmm. like doesn't matter because he's making all these sales based on his talent. Not based off of what he fucking wears. Yeah. But here this though, to me, the thing and, and the thing is, I take your point. Yes. 100% agree with you. Mm -hmm. like, I think is especially as you go higher up the ladder, the, and you are the only one. Yeah. Because right? I think the other thing I think that's really important that to give context to what you're saying is, if you are the only one, right? Who bolsters you? Like you can yeah. come in. You know, we can yeah. come in with our chest out, three hundred days of the year, but yeah. they got sixty five more days. Yeah. You wake up, you wake up, and you're not feeling good that day. You're feeling yeah. shitty. Yeah. You don't feel like you got the urge to push. Yeah. And and to me, like that's the kind of cross, the cross current that you have to navigate. Which is yeah. that. Yeah, he going on. He going <laughs> on. Because but the answer for that is your people, Dave. Yeah, you but, see, but we're gonna boast to you. We're gonna boast to you. We're yes. gonna post to but, you. But think about this. Okay. But think about this though, Chad. I'm coming from a time when I was the only one in exactly. a creative department of 200. Of 200. It's 200 other motherfuckers in the place, right? I understand. And you, you know, like, and you're dealing like unconscious microaggression at a time when we didn't right. have the word microaggression, right? To yeah. even address it. And so you think that you are fucked up. 
because things are going on around you and you're like did i did i perceive that yeah or is yeah. it to your point perception like did yeah. i perceive that did that really fucking happen yeah or am i crazy like and, and and so like i i think that the context i fully agree with you but i think the context of time given when i started in the industry absolutely. they were believe me we, we talk about blacks are still unicorns in the business yeah. absolutely but at the time when i started yeah. you better believe it was even more so and yeah. and you know and i i, I happen to be a man yeah. believe me if there were women black creatives and there were one or two i knew they were even more of unicorns. Like a couple of my bosses have been some of the some of the first women. Is, I, I worked I worked for two women, um, whom I mentioned, who I mentioned now, um, Valerie Graves, who wrote a book about this. I can't remember the name of her book, but she wrote a book about being the black unicorn in the business. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I worked for um, um, another creative director called Diane Campbell, who was a, a the only black creative in a, another part of the business for again this is for years they were the only ones so mm -hmm. i agree with you in terms of coming into the room and stating clearly what you do um but i do think you need to feel like you are part the organization you are in needs to back you 100 mm -hmm. and i think if your track record of success is stellar you can come into the room and say what the hell you like but if they don't know you, right? I think you have to be, you do have to be aware of perception. I don't think it should rule what you do or say. Right. But you should be aware of how they are probably looking at you. And to me, Message. what you do right. is you destroy that. So like, yeah. for example, case in point, you hear me talking now, like I make a decision. Mm -hmm. I could have adopted a kind of American twang, you know. I could have done more of my, I could have done, yeah. done more of my BK style. <laughs> 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 I didn't want to say it like you know, Caribbean guys are look, y'all not as rough as us New York guys, you know. We well, don't want to fuck that. Well, well, it depends. It depends on the scenario, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, they, they, they still got the Jamaicans here that will shoot you in your belly, you know, <laughs> put a shank under your rib just for fun. Right, shot you in the belly one time, yeah. Like, so, it, so there is a part of us that is like that, but the thing is, it, as you know, in these corporate boardrooms, right, you have to what you have to figure out how you what your way in is. So, one of the decisions I made was to not never change my accent so okay. that you you see me first and you say, Okay, there's a black man here. Um, I got all my things about black man, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I open my mouth and you hear the accent and, yeah. and they're like, wait, 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 where the fuck you from? I don't know that. I don't know exactly how we sound. And then I would, I had a joke that I used to make all the time. I would say, well, I'm David Pilgrim and I am from Oklahoma and blah, blah, blah. And they'd be like, what? <laughs> I was like, I kid, I kid, right? <laughs> and there's an icebreaker, right? And they're laughing yeah. and you got your way in. Right. Okay. From that point, right? They know. Okay. Well, he could laugh at himself, right? Right. And he could laugh at your ignorance. And then you have a way in, because I do think that no matter who you are, right? Advertising, at least what I do, yeah. is a service profession, right? Yeah. You giving me money to give you something back. So not that I have to serve you in terms of licking the scrotum, right? I don't have to lick your scrotum, <laughs> but. Oh, Lord. Oh, 
Hold on, hold on, Dave. Hold on, Dave. Not hold on. I, know, I know you got a cough there, man. Don't, don't choke. Don't choke, brother. Pause, pause, pause. 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 Dave, not on this show, Dave. Certain things will let slide on this show, but I didn't like the no, tone. No, that, that was nuts. I said that was nuts. <laughs> Look in the phone. <laughs> no, that's hilarious, bro. No, no, but you, 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 but you made a, a valid point. Yeah. I'm glad you said it too. Yeah. Dave was the likability, yeah. finding your way in, and that's what mm. goes back to the perception, right? It's mm. hard not to think about the perception when you know the likability gets you in the room. Mm. Yeah. So you, you, you know what I'm saying. So you're trying to make the joke here. You're trying to understand who can vouch for you, who can, you know, who to go to lunch with is strategic at that yeah. point. All of those things are strategic yes. and you try not to pay focus on it well it's all part of the overall game man yes and i think i think you know at the end of the day human beings right determine if they want lime with like, like i said lime which is what we do in yeah. barbie hang out yeah. like yeah. you determine who you want to hang out with in the first five minutes man i don't care yeah, who so. you are whether you're a oh, child so whether so you're so an fact. adult whoever yeah. right yeah and yeah. so you have to figure out the degree to which you want to hang out with these people and the degree to which you this is how i look at it if I come in and to do this fucking job every day, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of hours involved. Like we stay late. Yeah. Yeah. We crank shit out constantly. You're burning yourself out. <laughs> if I'm gonna do that, I want to have fun doing it. I want yeah. to enjoy who I'm hanging with. And I want to create an atmosphere where it doesn't feel like work. It mm -hmm. is work, but I don't want to feel like it's work. And so to me, that is my agenda when I come in the room. Message. <laughs> when we come in. Let's have some fucking fun here, people. That's the, number one. Number one. Let's have some fun doing this shit because it's some shit that, you know, it can become drudgery, it, especially yeah. for creative people. It can become fucking drudgery. And we don't want that. We want to have some fun doing it. I want to present you something that will make you either think or laugh, hopefully. And then secondly, buy. Right. Okay. But to me, it is very important to work out the way in but i agree with you i think that if you present yourself as a butler right a creative butler tell me you're you, fucking yourself up you. yeah you're fucking yourself up yeah. because you can't come back from that if you yeah. do that shit they will keep you as the butler and there's a lot that's convenient in in the in the overall perception of black people that falls right in line with that and you can never make that mistake yeah message I'm not right. saying I'm not saying be disrespectful, David. Be clear no, on my message. No, 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 100%. I'm not saying go in and be like, nigga, I'm in the <laughs> What I'm saying is, I'm saying stand 10 toes down. I've walked into rooms, like, i give you a perfect example. We did the Museum of Modern Art. It's called the MoMA Building, okay? I did it for a company called Turner, which is one of the biggest construction companies in the United States itself. Mm-hmm. One of their headquarters buildings is right down the block, right by um, Radio City Music Hall. I go up into the building. I'm a superintendent. I walk into the room with other superintendents and project managers. I'm the only black person in the room. Mm -hmm. Not only am I the only black person in the room, my company didn't forward my company didn't forward me the schematics or the blueprints needed for me to understand the scheduling and what I need to do with the job. So when I walk in the room, they're like, "Oh, Chatty's here." Da 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 da. Now I already walk in the room. I already see how everybody looks at me, right? So I'm not. I'm just letting you know. I'm not going to dumb myself down. Like if I know something, I'm gonna tell you I know it. So when, so the first thing they said to me was like, um, oh, well, Chatty, why you didn't do this and why you didn't do that and why you didn't do this and why you didn't do that? I said, first of all, I don't have any schematics. I don't have any blueprints. Can somebody forward it to me? Oh, we forwarded to your project manager. Well, 
with all due respect, my project manager is not on a job, but I am. So here's my email. And if you want to forward them to me right now, we can get we can get started. They forward it to me. I put them up on the screen. And I go, now, first of all, you want me to do this, this, and that? And they go, yes. I go, but doesn't he have to do this? And doesn't he have to do this? They go, yes. So doesn't he go first? Why would I do this? And then he has to go and I would have to undo my work. And you understand? All 100%. I'm saying is if you learn something, if you took the time to go to school and learn something, if you took the time to go on a job and learn something, do not be afraid to show what you don't dumb yourself down. That's the 100%, message. hundred percent. I mean, I'm, I'm, not I'm, be afraid to, I'm, to let them know that you're fucking intelligent and you know your shit. That's all I, I'm saying. Yes. You know I, what I mean? And what I, I would say yeah. as, as a creative director mindset, I'm in violent agreement with you. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, because what you just described to me is that, because you modeled it rather than said it, which is yeah. that you went in the room and you modeled your competence by asking specific questions. Yeah. Right. And to me, that is the same. We are, we are saying the same thing. Absolutely. Because the issue is, again, how do you find your way in? Right. Because the bottom line is that you're getting in. Right. Like, Absolutely. I'm I not leaving. I come this far. I come this far. I get into fucking. Right. I'm not leaving. Right. How Exactly. However right. I get in, I staying in and I sticking in. And you, yeah. you got to work it out. Yeah. But I'm in. And it's too late. I'm already here. By the time you realize, by the time you read this, it's too late. Yeah. Facts. Right? <laughs> As a fact, my project manager, but what we gonna do for the next two weeks when I'm still standing here? You need work done. Exactly, exactly. You might as well give me what I need and let me get busy. What is the task at hand, and how can we accomplish it? Yeah. Yes. Speak. So speaking speaking of your work, brother, I'm curious. What 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 is the best advice that you would give to other chief creative officers that are black that want to get in the industry? And what is your favorite project? What's your favorite piece of work that you put your hat on? Let me see. Um. Again, I think I think. The, the biggest piece of advice is not really a creative one. It is really more, how do you, how do you want to live your life in this business? Right? Mm. Ask yourself that. Mm. Like, because creative people, right, make creative shit every day. Like we mm. wake up and we make creative shit. That's what we do. And so telling someone about how to be more creative is not, to me, the, the, the point. <laughs> Creatives are the kind of people where if you lock them in a room, because that's literally what happens is that at an agency, you're locking creatives in a room and saying, come up with some shit at five. Coming back at five, I want to see some motherfucking shit that you created. Right? So you learn that muscle, right, gets built over time. When you come from college, you're doing it all over the place. The difference is now when you hit the agency life is that you're given a strategy that you yeah. have to follow. Direction. And you have to find a way to marry real life situations with the brief or problem that you are supposed to solve it's a pro it's like you're solving problems that's what that's what creatives do in advertising mm -hmm. so the muscle that you're building over time is how to solve these problems right and you're solving them in a way that doesn't feel like the product is struggling at you is one of these things where you you look at the shit and you laugh and again it's too late by the time you read it it's too late if you look at the commercial and you laugh if you look at the commercial and you smile, if you look at the commercial and you sad, it's too late. We got you, right? That's yeah. So creatively, all creative directors, all young creatives who want to get in, they already have an awareness of that. So I can, and everybody has their own way of being creative, period. Mm. Not just creatives, everybody, right? Yeah. Even if you're doing spreadsheets. If no two people don't approach a spreadsheet the same way, everybody has a creative way in. That's theirs. Yeah. So... I would just say from a creative standpoint, just keep creating because if you create every day, the 10,000 hours, you will begin to learn that process. But surviving in the business now, the longer you're in it is more 
politics than actual creativity. Mm. So again, how are you? Oh, you guys, third time, man. I knew to hit it. I knew you were hitting on that one. I mean, I mean, because but think about it, like, because you know, look at the top of my fucking head. I'm gray, right? I've been in business a long time, and there's still not a lot of black creatives in the business that you hear about, right? Because mm -hmm. the business, by its very nature, right, it's always been run by white guys. And this is mm -hmm. no, I'm not denigrating white guys, but they've created an environment that is favorable to them. Yeah, right? absolutely. And so women, because especially around the childbearing years, vanish in the business, right? So you will have, you you start the business and there are women all around you. And all of a sudden, many women begin to hit the, the, the top of their childbearing years. A lot of them leave because to stay late every night and work every night to crank shit up means that your children get neglected. So women are not prepared to make that sacrifice quite often. Right. Again, it's been created by white guys to be favorable to them. Again, and then with black people too, quite often, and you and this is specific to black people now. Yes. Our creativity is built in the school of the side hustle. We be hustling right? oh, on that. the side. That's how we really build our shit. Like every black person I know, you guys included, I'm sure. You do some, you do your your shit. That is your your day job. You're pulling in some dough, but they got some shit that you really want to fucking do, and that's where we really grow our shit. Yeah. The issue comes is that there's a, there's a point in your career where you gotta make a decision: the side hustle or the job. And if you choose the job, how how are you gonna live your life in this job? How are you gonna feel every day that? Are you going to make decisions to not work on certain brands because they hurt your community? Mm. Are you going to make decisions on certain brands because you don't like the client? Are you going to reject a piece of business that your that your agency has that you don't think is favorable? Are you going to resign your place on the business because you don't like the, the feeling on the job? Um, do you realize that you've created an environment that might be hostile around you at the job mm. that, and that the problem is you? Or or how do you how do you react to someone around you who has created a hostile environment? And what are you going to do? Are you going to stay silent? Or are you going to respond? These are political questions, really, right? These are these are emotional questions. These are the things that allow you to survive in the business. And to me, yeah, yeah, no, you take the class for a period. <laughs> because the, the the funny part about it is. Everybody on this show right now has dealt with almost every single thing that you just brought up. Yep. Right. Should, yep. I, should I jeopardize my integrity for a client or a campaign that I do not believe in? Yes. Do I deal with this client knowing that their value system does not align with mine? Yes. You understand right. what I'm saying? Should I stay in, a, in an environment that I know is hostile? And, and hostile doesn't mean that you're just in an environment where people are yelling at you or screaming at you or you're always arguing. If they're not promoting you or helping to develop you, it's yes. still hostile. If love is not being served That's at the table, right. as they say, right? That's how right. do you how do you act? Yeah, you know, and um, it it is a big decision. I'm not gonna lie, it is a big decision. I am not angry at the people who will choose to stay and choose economics. Mm -hmm. over principles i'm not angry at you everybody yeah. is not a leader everybody won't be a martyr for the for the culture everybody will not be a fucking warrior for the culture i'm not mad 
Because no, you don't have people to make both decisions. That's that's yeah. I mean, story. people like I try at, and it's taken me a while to get here, but I think that you have to get to a point where you don't judge other people's journeys, right? Mm. People mm. make their choices for even the people who really hate you or make your life difficult. Yeah. I've tried more and more and more to to empathize with what I believe their journey is, put on their shoes and figure it out. I think that that muscle becomes far more important as you last in any industry because it is your ability to see the macro, right? Yeah. If you're, because the nature yeah. of leadership yeah. is that you're moving from micro to macro. When yeah. you're down at the bottom, right. you're dealing with micro. You're, you're the worker bee doing the actual work. Right. And as you surge towards management, you're getting into the macro, which is like, right. there are certain sacrifices you're going to have to make at the micro level to allow the macro to survive. Yep. You may have to fire people, these yep. kinds of things. And you have to be very mindful of the journeys that you're beginning to interrupt. But again, to me, reach out and try to understand what people's journeys are. And, you know, it, this sounds really corny, but it's one of those things where, to me, develop some form of, this sounds really fucking new age, but kind of like some kind of loving aspect to, to how you move through the thing, move through okay. the whole business, right? Okay. In other words, you give off a certain kind of love that says, I forgive you if you fuck up, Right. Mm. I can give you some tough love, but I'm not judging you and mm. calling you a shitty person, right? Mm. Because what happens is you keep building the team. Because to me, again, at the at the at the top level, you run in a team, and the right. thing that you want to run is you want a team where people want to come and join your team. You want people to stay in your team, and you want people to perform for your team. It is yeah. less about you; it is more the environment you create. And the kinds of political decisions you make that allow your team to survive and thrive. Ooh. Yeah, Jared says, um, what do you say, Jared? Lead lead with love. Lead a lot love. of times. Remember um, you said that? You say, <laughs> I do, I, yeah. Shit. I say so many lines. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like damn, that's, I said, damn, that's good. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> damn, that's good. Of course I said it. Yeah, put it on the damn call card. <laughs> so so just to give you context, like, you know, within our company, we had a couple internal issues and stuff like that. And we've had some good days and we've had some bad days business wise. Right. Mm -hmm. So Jared has spoke to his mentor, Solomon. Wasn't it Solomon? Yeah. 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 And then when we talked, he was like, yo, we got to leave with love. You don't remember that? Yeah. That, that was. Okay. Yeah, that, I that thought was I was talking. <laughs> Look, I didn't think he was going to come with I, I got a lot of hard of hey, to go to ABC, me, like, man. Yeah, so, the, the only thing I will say is this, Dave. There is a big difference. I am not judging a person on a mistake. We all learn every day if you are open to learning. I learn mm -hmm. every day. On this show, there's a lot of things that Jared has taught me, that guests have taught me. If I don't know something, Jared will be like, yo, Chad, you know, I, I don't know what the fuck that is. Should teach me, right? Yeah. There is a difference between a mistake and somebody um, doing something in, in, um, intently. You understand? 100%. A mistake is uh, I walked and tripped over something I didn't know was there. It was a mistake. Mm. Once I know it's there, if I keep walking and keep tripping over it, it's not a mistake anymore. Exactly. All I'm saying is there are people that can make mistakes. A mistake can be forgiven. We can talk about it. And there are people that are destructive that will intentionally yes. do shit to sabotage yes. what we're doing. That I will not tolerate. There 100%. are people that walk in that are destructive that don't want to be team players. That I will not tolerate. 100%. So for those people, I'm telling you right now, 
I will not have you a part of this. You understand? 100%. I will weed your ass out immediately. Yes. Because in order to grow, it has to be some type of cohesion. That's yes, what I, I agree with you. And it's see, I think again, it's it's kind of understanding what people's yeah. journey is. Yeah. And where they are on the journey and whether you can stay with them too. Yeah. So you're exactly to your point. Like sometimes yeah. you meet people and you're like, this person is extremely talented, mm. but they cause a certain level of negative energy within mm -hmm. the team. And you give them a few chances to address yeah. it. If they can't address it, you yeah. have to say to the to the powers that be, HR, call HR and say, listen, move this person out of my team. Because yeah. th they will destroy the whole team if I keep them. So you have you have you have a decision to make. What about reliability, Dave? What about if they're late all the time? What about well, if well, you not, but here it is, Chad. Like, let me tell you, you right, like these things, those things don't really exist in advertising. I'll tell you why, right? Because advertising as a game is okay. built on flights, meaning oh, okay. that every single ad you see was delivered by a certain time so that the medium could disperse it, right? You gotta get it to Facebook right, okay. so yeah. it can land on Facebook. Okay. If the shit don't get there on time, right? right we lose the business. So yeah, the saying. notion of delivery, right? Yeah. There's nothing more important. The singularly yeah. most logistical, the singularly most important logistical factor in advertising is delivery. Yeah. You got to deliver. If you can't deliver, you gone. And and we will we'll take care of that early. If, <laughs> even the first year. You cannot deliver. Your yeah. ass is out. Yeah, yeah. Your ass is out. So I'm sorry, but you're right. I should mention that. Like when you come into the business as a young person, yeah, you must learn the discipline of delivery. If yeah, it you is. cannot deliver, you are gone. There's no, there's no, yeah. there's no way around that. Yeah. If you can't have it on TV at the time when it needs to be on TV, fuck you, your mother too. You're gone. That's <laughs> it. Right. Damn! You know, you know, Dave gets his way. You know, Dave. That's all I'm saying. You know, yes. In anything that we do, you know, punctuality is always a, a, an important part. Um, delivering on your part of the project because it's always a team effort. Delivering mm -hmm. on your portion of the project when you say you're going to do it and, and just delivering in general because some people just always drop the ball where somebody else has to pick up their work or we all get fucking fired. So that's yes. all I'm saying. You know, 100%. 100%. Not fucking performing. You know, Dave, let me tell you something. You cannot get to CCO C anyway. You're not going to get to a C-suite individual looking like us fucking bullshitting. We need to pump that narrative. That's why also it's not many of us there because motherfuckers don't want to do the work that it takes to get there. Yes. You understand what I'm saying? Motherfuckers 100%. don't want to go to school and get educated or go do an internship for fucking four years if need be and do the grunt work before working up through the ranks to fucking get but, to that type of and position. Then, but to play devil, you're absolutely right. To play yeah, devil advocate, yeah, that's another yeah. part of the problem we have, right? Yeah. You work that hard, you bust yeah. your ass, you prove yeah. yourself to become a C-suite, and yeah. then you don't want to put the ladder down because you're not going to be punctual like me. You're not going to do the same things like me, right? And that's not a problem we have in the industry. Yeah. Man, look, it is. You. I, oh, it is. I think I think the problem, the, the, the thing that's really, really difficult is that, I mean, you're, you're touching on some, some real hot button points. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the, the thing that immediately occurs to me is that, as black people in life, but that means in business, mm -hmm. we always have to work twice as hard to get half as much acknowledgement. We know this cliche, Absolutely. right? Like coming through the door. Message.
that's coming yeah, up. Yeah, quite often that's just how it is. And quite often, yeah. and again, in a in a in a in a field like advertising, you're again one of the few black people there. So there's a pressure walking through the door on yeah. you in terms of delivery on all levels. But the other thing that that creates is that you are hypersensitive to who is mediocre around your ass. Because if mm. you are fucking busting your ass and motherfuckers mediocre around you, you can see who the fuck they are right away. Right? Yeah. And those guys get... And those people are dangerous because they get put on blast by your very existence. You don't have to do anything to put them on blast. Just your arrival and your delivery puts them on blast. Yep. And those people will do anything to protect their mediocrity. Yeah. Right? And they snake your ass in a minute, bro. What was the line you said? Hypersensitive to mediocrity? <laughs> you know, yes, man. Oh, you clipping that. Yeah, I, 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 I got the lotion. I'm just hypersensitive to, to mediocrity. <laughs> yeah, for real. Shea butter. What he said, you were something uh, predisposed to losers. So that's yeah, one of yeah, the you have, a, you, yeah, you have an unwavering loyalty to losers. That's one of those. That's not like you. Yeah, it's not crazy, like man. It's crazy. Like, like, you, like you can suss out the mediocrity yeah. in a room in a heartbeat. Yeah. And yeah. the problem is, is that you ha have to find a way to survive around that yeah. because mm. especially being a minority yeah we are presumed to be the mediocre ones in the room right we, yeah. we they presume that we have the disadvantages right yeah. and that we are there by accident yeah and quite often it, the reverse happens is because you're mediocre because your privilege has shielded you from having to do the actual work yeah, so is. you so so your sense of yourself is undergirded by you've you've received support through your entire career that a person like any one of us probably didn't get. And you don't even know. You don't even you don't even count the support. You don't even know. And most white guys, to be honest, and, and again, I, I'm not saying this to trash white guys. I'm saying this more as just a kind of a, having lived through the case study of being in advertising this long, there, there are a couple of, I've worked for a lot of very privileged white guys who don't really understand the nature of their privilege, right? Mm -hmm. They're nice people. They're very smart. They're amazing creatives. They run a great creative department. But they don't understand the level of how privilege has shaped their perception of the world and how mm -hmm. sometimes they may be mediocre in, they might be great at creative, but they're mediocre at how to run the department or how to treat people, right? How to, how to grow the team. It can be any number of different things, but, but as a, a black person, you probably are not mediocre. The likelihood that you are mediocre in any field of business in the States is so low because you won't survive. If a black mediocre person comes in, your ass is out faster than everybody else. We're gone. If yeah. you're there, you are great. Or you're probably in the top 20%. That's just how it is, right? Yeah. But, but the folks around us don't understand that we have that burden that we carry all the time. Yeah. We cannot go below 20 We can't go below the top 20%. We won't get in. I, I see Jared Will spinning over there. I see, I yeah. see you thinking, Jared. I see you thinking. No, I, I, I was thinking. I was really thinking, like, bro, yeah. you know the game, and I'm just gonna ask you a real ass question, yeah. bro. What made you stay in it? Okay. Oh. Um, I think I stayed in it because, well, here's the here the, how the career career trajectory affected it. So okay. I stayed. I stayed at the general water white white essentially white agencies, but called general market. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing. Like the business has all kinds of euphemisms to define itself. That again help white men do their do their job optimally so they so white white 
agencies that cater to mostly white or the audiences refer to themselves as general market. Yeah. Okay. And then the ones that cater to the browner people are referred to as multicultural. I hate right? it. Wait, hold on. Hold on. Let me, I, mean, I got to give you one. I hate the multicultural. Hate it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're marketing. We're the culture. Marketers. That's the thing. That's the thing. That's the thing about it. And to me, like that, that whole thing creates a certain level of, of division that always puts you at a certain level of disadvantage. So, mm -hmm. so, and, and the money follows those definitions. Yeah. So general market is where the money is, all the budgets. When, when you deal with a client. The big budgets. Of any, yes. If, if you're trying, like, if you're a black person trying to get into the business and do well on your own, you have your own firm. The real struggle is how to get those big clients, right? Yeah. And the problem is, is that that work scales really big. Like they need the agency to be big to handle the request. So if you need, so like, for example, I worked on a, like, like a year ago in the Super Bowl, right? There was a campaign where the M&M candies got fired mm. and they got um, Maya Rudolph to be the spokesman for M&Ms, right? It was all fake, right? I, I worked on that. Mm-hmm. I worked at a general market agency. I worked at Vayner Media on that. And the reason why we would have gotten a thing like that to work on is because when the client comes in with the request to do the Super Bowl, your firm has to be able to do the creative, get it out on time, make sure it hits on the Super Bowl at the time when it's supposed to hit, and you got to measure the metrics and get a sense of what is going on. Smaller businesses don't often have the scale. It, the team is like 10 people might be at a small agency, for example, whereas at a large agency is a team of 200, 300, right? So so the problem is, is that the money follows the size and the scale as much as it does the color of the skin too. It's a combination mm -hmm. of two things that you're fighting against. If you want your business to scale, you probably need to make a, you have to have partnerships with bigger agencies so that you get the call if they need a very specific skill set. And you become part of the Borg. You know, you got to incorporate with the Borg a little bit. Yeah. Scale. If you don't do that, you're going to be working at a smaller level with smaller businesses, which are no less worthy of your time and attention. But it's a different game of scale. And cool. that is the difference. And that's the thing that that is really kind of the thing that I, the tension that I think we always navigate as smaller black businesses versus wanting to grow large. I yeah. just got one question to that real quick. Mm hmm. Um, because I know it's called skin in the game sometimes. So, you know, because I do construction and other things, I know it might work a little different, but a lot of times, like if a client comes in and asks us to do something, right, they'll only give us a certain amount of money up front. Mm -hmm. We have to have the capital to kind of get it done in front. Yes. Of so, so with a Super Bowl campaign like that, would it be safe to say that you would have to be a large business because you would actually have to purchase the block time yourself and be able to front that money you know super bowl ads are in the fucking millions right yes front that money first right get it placed like you said get it to run and then say okay we got everything and then bill them out and wait for a net 30 or a net 60 to get paid well like you would you would have well i mean again this is the, the difference in how those businesses at that scale work is that right. they plan the calendar year a year in advance two years okay in advance. got you so the monies and the budgets are allocated more by media Right. Got so it. you know that the media costs a certain amount of money. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, and gotcha. and so that's not changing. Gotcha. Those costs aren't changing. So if you're a company that is going to buy in the Super Bowl, yeah. you have to allot for that money ahead of time. Now, you may not have all of it. 
you know, because they're shifting costs in terms of how how much the creative costs to make. You know, it might have a lot of CGI, and you might spend more money on CGI, whatever, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But the bottom line is that you have the basic lump, and then the agency, probably if it's large, has a has a prerequisite lump as well to cover themselves if they need to front things up front. But quite often, if you're from the time you're leaving the agency to go and work on a shoot or mm-hmm. go and do an edit. That stuff has to be fronted because those those vendors are not going to work until they know that they're being paid. Being paid. So that money. So that. So so again, and, and the way and the way that the bigger clients tend to work is that there are tent pole there are tent pole times during the year when they know that the big money has to be spent. Okay. Uh, basically, Black Friday, the money got to get spent. Yeah. Q4. Right. Um, back to school, the money got to get spent. Um, you know, you you name it. it uh, Valentine's Day, the money got to get spent. There are certain kinds of tent pole events during the cultural cultural year where they know big money has to get spent, and the budgets tend to be built around those tent pole moments. Okay, that makes sense. So okay. that then sometimes that's the and that's the other thing that we as small businesses sometimes don't understand. So that then you come in making a request for dollars at a time which is which is not when those tent pole events take place. The money's not really flowing to the same degree. So it's harder for you to get the money to get paid to do what you want to do because they've dispersed the money a year ago based on what they thought the big temple events would be. The the exceptions to that rule tend to be that something pops off in culture that is so relevant. Right. Williams does a viral video. Absolutely, <laughs> Cat Williams. And everybody talking about Cat Williams and be like, we're going to jump on the fucking Cat Williams train right now because if right. we do it two days from now, no one will give oh. a fuck and you're going to be Johnny come lately. Right. So, so there are times when the money can move quickly like that yeah. because of tentpole moments in culture, which do not follow the calendar tentpole events. Gotcha. But but those are the exception and not the rule. Mm. Mm. That was, yeah, that's real, bro. So yeah. like, and also something sometimes like what agencies do is like, say for instance, let's use a brand, let's use Nike, right? Yeah. Nike has a, a $50 million campaign. They want to go to, to, to Vayner, right? Vayner's going to do branding, the media, social media, SEO. What they might do is take a portion of that. We're going to do the branding portion. Then they'll work with a smaller agency like ourselves. They'll outsource different facets of it gotcha. depending on what their skill set is. So right. really there's like 10 agencies working on this one campaign. And that's exactly. why the money and the cash flow is so important. Like what Dave was saying. Yeah, that's, that, see, I, yeah. I, thought, I thought it was like that because that's yeah. what construction is. You'll have yeah. a GC and then we'll sub everything out. We'll exactly. have plumbers do this, exactly. a different electrician company, a exactly. different a concrete company. That, that's my thought. Exactly how it is. That's what I said. So, when he said bigger agency, I'm like, yeah, because they probably need the capital to be able to pay yes. out to get this fucking thing yes. done. You, you still need you still need those live dollars yeah. in case you got to move stuff in the in the short term, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So and then to, to, it goes back. So I'll describe a process for you asked me earlier, and I didn't answer the question. What is what was one of my favorite pieces of work? Okay. So I I did I worked on Gillette a couple of years ago, and I did a campaign. I worked on a campaign. They were trying to launch this product. The product was a it was a the product was a failed product in the long term. But okay. the experience of working on it was interesting. So it was um, it was something called the Gillette Styler. So it was an attempt to have a kind of um, a trimmer that could trim your beard mm-hmm. and trim because mm-hmm. you know remember Gillette is is a shaver, yeah. a right? razor, right. a razor, right? Whereas this thing was it was like a little kind of a trimmer that you would get in. Like, it's a smaller version of what you would see in the in the barber barber shop that the guys would use, right? Because yeah, Gillette is known for their disposable stuff mainly. Yeah, and, and and known and known for the removal of hair, right. Right. not the shaping of hair. Right. Like when you shave, you you getting right. rid of the hair, right. right? When you think of Gillette, you like getting the you get anything, yeah. and you shaving yourself clean quite often, yeah. right? Yeah. But they had this thing that they were calling the Gillette Styler, which was how you kind of trimmed and shaved your your beard, and 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 to their credit, they realized, wait a minute, men of color 
do far more shaping, right? Because quite often in a lot of um, corporate environments, they want you to be clean shaven. Absolutely. So you would normally be just using a razor and you kind of do your thing, you're in and out, you go. You, but to do a trimmer, you got to find the target, you got to target the people who are, who care about that. Yeah. Because in general, as they say, if, if you see a black man that doesn't have facial hair, you can't trust him. Right, <laughs> you know, you. I don't know if you've ever heard that. You know, if you've ever heard that. I'm no, but think about it. 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 How many men you know that have entirely clean shaven faces? How many you know? That was me till like a year and a half ago. What what what, what field were you, what field were you in? My main field is construction. Right. Yeah. A lot of the men in construction have clean are clean shaven. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a mixture of both because construction really doesn't care. It doesn't care about education. It doesn't okay, care about... Okay, well, but, but, I could, but I could tell you, right? Yeah. Like, basically, in like if you worked at a place like IBM for yeah. years, up until about maybe the early 2000s, there was an unspoken rule that you had to be clean shaven if you worked there. She was like Catholic school, bro. No braids, no this, no that. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All, all those things about hair and stuff right. that we know right. come from that whole belief that you have to be clean shaven, right? Right. That's the whole razor business is built on that. It it it's it's the armed forces too. Like in the armed yeah. forces yeah. is where that yeah. starts. In the armed forces, you know, everybody is clean shaven, right? Yeah. Um. In the army, I don't know if I'm yeah. no, well, I'm a marine, so just so you know, so I have experience. Army, I'm army, a army, army, army. Yeah, I'm a marine. Right. Um, and when you go to boot camp, yes, they shave everything off. But right. Once you pass boot camp and you get into the fleet, you can have like a little mustache or something. Um, but, but it has to be maintained. It has to be very. It has to be has maintained. To be maintained. So, so as far as a beard, they don't allow beards unless you get breakouts and you have to go to medical and get what's called a no shaving chit to show that if you shave, you'll break out. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's still it's the exception still prove the rule, right? Yeah. So the bottom line is that you know Gillette is in fact Gillette. The reason why Gillette got as big as it was, at least one of the reasons, is that they used to give the blades away to free to give the blades away free to the armed forces to the military so that, so that then that built, and then when the guys left the armed forces then they kept using it and yep. they, they built their audience that way so all that to say no we're doing this we're doing this gillette style of thing and someone realized that men of color spend a lot more time on the shaping of hair than other groups mm -hmm. and so i was working at a, a multicultural agency at the time that's no longer that no longer is, is no longer around but um we got to exactly the process you just described. There was a main agency that was in charge of the campaign. And then they hired us to be part of the multicultural legs that they yeah. had to have in right. order to, have to target the different groups. <laughs> we ended up doing a commercial that had three principles in it. It had that guy, um, his name is a Spanish actor called Gar um, Gael Garcia Bernal. He's a Mexican dude. Mm -hmm. um, Adrian Brody tall white guy with a kind of big nose actor he's won a few oscars yeah and andre 3000 mm. andre 3000 three stacks three stacks <laughs> right. <laughs> that's right that's right that's right so i got to work on that and the the, yeah. the really interesting thing about that was again like you got to see that whole thing that we just described which is that you have the main agency we are partnered out as vendors right um we had to do a commercial that featured all three of the guys, but we also then had to do cut downs of, of those commercials that then only featured one of the principals. So mm -hmm. I did all the ones with Andre 3000 that were targeted to black people. 
And then we had to do like digital, a whole digital thing that kind of came out of that. Like all the ads that came out of that, we had to run print that was relevant to it, but didn't have the other two guys in it. We had to, we shot that in Prague, right? Mm. With, I can't remember the director's name, huge, huge, huge director. We shot it over the course of three or four days. And the reason why we had to shoot it in Prague is because in Prague, there's not a big paparazzi. Okay. So you can work without disturbance from paparazzi Makes sense. in Prague, right? And, but then also we had, to, I had to get, I, I got to meet three stacks at his pretty much at his height. And I have to say, man, he was just such an impressive person. Like mm. he was contrary to what you might think of a hip hop artist. He was one of the most thoughtful people. Cause he's pure ever, He's pure, pure And he, but he, but the thing is he has a coin. The thing about it is that he, he doesn't, he's like anybody else. He doesn't believe he's that talented. He's just Andre. Like he was so real and honest a person. It was a pleasure to work with him. Yeah. And I just felt like, and he was at the point too where he was beginning to learn that he was a stylish person. So, so the notion of the thing was called a styler, but it also leaned into the fact that he was a stylish person. He, and he was really the most stylish of those three guys. Oh, hold on. Yeah. Is this pre Erica Badu or post? Post. Badu? You know he was stylish. I was with the incense or without the incense? Man. As you know, you know, when Badula, when, when you invoke Badula, you know that's relevant. It's relevant to talk about what style we talk about. Yeah, Pre- John, tell you. Or post Badu. So he was, I mean, he would have been, I think he would have been just, this would have been just after um, oh, Love Below. Yeah. So he would have been, again, at the height of his powers at that point. Yeah. And, and it was just, it was, that was one of the perks. Every now and again in, in advertising, you get to work with celebrities. Yeah. And that was just a fun experience to work with him. And oh, also wow. just because quite often what you had to do then, and we wrote copy for radio commercials or anything like that, you had to imagine yourself in his voice. And in fact, Haji was one of the writers on that as well, <laughs> just to, to pull Haji wow. Williams back in. Oh. Haji Williams, who, who I met years ago, we kind of dragged him back in because we knew that he loved hip hop and that his one of Haji's abilities is to understand the syntax and the speech patterns of how people are. And try to write a script in the in the voice of that person, and then so that meant that Andre could approve those scripts without having to write them himself. Nice, mm. fine. So, but the whole the whole process was really just a fun process, yeah. and it just felt like you got to work on something again that was in culture that you knew, and it goes back to something we were, we were talking about earlier. Like one of the reasons why I went over to multicultural is because there there was this additional sense of mission. Right, mm-hmm. working at the general market agency, I, and I'm not to den- not denigrating that experience, but you you do work that is targeted to everyone, yeah, and you yeah. do it at a high level, etc. But when you work at a multicultural agency, if you get an opportunity like that Gillette experience, you get to tailor it to your audience in a way that you know quite well. Like they really want us listening to the hip hop. We know what we want it to sound like. We can smell when it's inauthentic. Yeah. So yeah. you become the guardian of what is authentic. Because mm. quite often in advertising stuff, stuff gets kind of cheesy, yeah, you know, yeah. and whack. And yeah, the, in in multicultural, your job was to not be whack, to make sure that the product that hit the shelves was not whack. That's and, it. And and that additional level of mission made you more committed to the work. So that answers your question: Why did I stay so long? Like that's real. Working in multicultural, as much as there are diminished budgets and sometimes diminished expectations, which is part of the broader thing we've talked about. There is just this additional sense of mission that, like, when you're working on stuff that you know brown people are going to consume, you are the guardian. You are the reason why it's not shitty. And that's important. 
That's super important. You know what? As you're saying that, bro, that's something that we struggled with or, or something I definitely thought about when we created the agency. Obviously, we're, we're a general agency. We do SEO, social media, content marketing, B2B, a lot of B2B brands. But the labeling of the multicultural. It's the you know, it's like you're shooting yourself in the fucking foot. But at the same time, I want the opportunity to work on brands and speak directly to my audience, which is us. But this is why we have the platform that we can speak directly to those people. So mm-hmm. it's like, but if we were to work with Eminem and they're like, yo, what's what's popping off in uh in, in culture? Chad, what do you think we'd do with that shit? Um, I just you know gotta, what I'm saying? I just gotta say this. It's 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 one of those double-edged swords, because I know we come up one time. It's one of those double-edged swords, right? You don't want to be labeled multicultural, but even though we're general, we understand that the culture that's not our culture is going to come to us to con- to get in contact with our culture and, and our nice. thoughts and, and feels for the culture. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just yeah. how it goes. Like, you understand? Because like he said, we're, we're the guardians of our culture. They know nobody know our culture better than us. So no, we're not labeled multicultural, but a, a, a non- ethnic company that doesn't know our culture because you don't live it. Listen, hanging out, I'm going to be clear. I don't give a fuck. Take it how y'all want to take it. Be unapologetic on the show. Hanging out with us, saying that you have black friends, that is not the same thing as growing up, living, breathing, and fucking being immersed in our culture every single fucking day. It's no, it's, it's no, it's no, Harrison, you can you can think you know our culture, you can emulate our culture, but you truly don't understand our culture until you actually live and you're immersed exactly. in our culture, and you go through the shit that our culture goes through on a daily basis. And I'm gonna leave it at that. Hundred percent, man. Hundred percent. I mean, like we're the ones who the cab. I mean, it doesn't happen as as often now because we have Uber. But right, if, you, if you're the black man standing up there and the cab drives by you and picks up the person, exactly, you, exactly, you, exactly. If you haven't been through that, I can describe that to you, but you don't know what the feeling is. Is to have right. it happen to you repeatedly, right? You know, to live in your neighborhood and watch it um, not prosper, and then all of a sudden you see the neighborhood change, yeah. and everything seems to benefit everybody else, and you're being asked to move. You have to live that to know it. Yeah, yeah. Haji, I'm, I'm sorry, David. You know, it, it's it's. I know we coming up on time. It's it's. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we. This is part one. This is. <laughs> we didn't even get to the DEI yeah, stuff. Even... <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. We wanted to go we, crazy. I've, I, it's a lot more we got to get to. I know we're coming <laughs> up on time. Um, I just want to thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Um, what I do want to do, what I do want to do, I'm gonna. I want you to, if you could, put your number in the private chat. Yeah. Um, sure. I'm gonna create a group chat between me, you, and Jared. Um, we do that for all our guests so that we can always uh, stay in communication, so we can foster this relationship. Uh, we want to extend to you the inv- the invitation that we extend to all our guests. If you're ever in New York City, <clears throat> if you're yeah, ever you live in New York, aren't you in Brooklyn? I mean, I mean, I mean, BK. Oh, what's up? Done deal. Flatbush, Flatbush, and Newkirk. Flatbush and Newkirk. Flatbush and Newkirk. I don't even gotta give you the speech. Then no, no, listen, no, 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 no. Dollar Van, Dollar Van. We take a Dollar Van. We fucking take. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, we. De- Definitely, I know I'm 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 going out of town tomorrow. Um, and I'll come back Tuesday, and then me and Jared fly out of town for a part a part fest um conference. But sometime in February, maybe the first week in February, David, we definitely gonna pull up on you, and we are gonna have an in person man, and definitely break bread and chop it up because um, black you history, black history, yeah. Let's do it. Let's oh, do that it. would be dope too. You see, that Fire. would be dope, man. Yeah. So you know and. Let the people know where they can find you, David, because uh, um, I know it's a lot of people that's going to want to definitely reach out to you. Um, Just hit me on LinkedIn. Look for David Pilgrim on LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest. 
They okay. build them on LinkedIn, okay. man. That's what it is, brother. But you do want to just just echo, you know, Chad's sentiments, yeah. man. Thank you, brother. Um, you know, like I said, man. Um, first of all, also shout out to Haji once again, man. Thank you for mm-hmm. introducing us, brother. Introducing us is amazing, brother. And, and man, thank you for fighting the good fight, man. Thank I just want to say that. Thank you. You know what thank, I mean? Thank you. Thank you for the acknowledgement. Thanks for the opportunity to be here, man. It's been a pleasure. Oh, absolutely, bro. Like we we don't champion each other enough for fighting the good fight. You know what I'm saying? Being there is because of the, the the stories and the struggles that you guys went through. Haji, yourself, the Walt back in the day and the shit that I had to go through and persevere through allows us for not be one person in the room now. Now there's five. Is there right. still a lot of work that needs to be done? Absolutely. To make it 50? Absolutely. But you guys persevered through that shit. And so don't think that's not taking, you know, we don't take that shit lightly, man. I've been in the industry. I had to get the fuck out. So, <laughs> so realness. Yeah. realness, man. That's that's why you think, why do you think Jared, Jared could very easily just come on and say, ladies and gentlemen, episode 89, David Pilgrim. Why yeah. do you think Jared takes time? This is not like a cookie cutter thing. He takes time to research the person. He takes time to look at your accomplishments. He takes time to make sure that he gives each and every one of our guests the the flowers that they deserve. Yes, we might miss a couple things, but sometimes our intros are long because we're trying to show you, like I said to you about, you know, not accepting the fact that you had that high GPA. Fuck that. We're going to give you your flowers because like Jared said, we are programmed in our culture not to celebrate each other. This is what we're trying to break the programming of. Heard that. Message. Gotta celebrate, <laughs> because how can we expect you to champion us if we're not going to champion you? Heard that. Heard That's that. It, All the way. All and if you're going to champion anything too, guys, we are, you got to drink. If you're still watching with your more than a title cup, make sure you drink it with your more than a title cup. It's the only thing that keeps your Hennessy cold for two hours. I promise. Two hours I'm, I'm on the road right now, so I ain't got my cup. We're going to hit you with the QR code. We're going to give you our five seconds. Some person that buys does not get a discount, but we love you. <laughs> we love y'all man Dave yeah. much love brother we gonna see you guys next week another episode of more than the title baby excellent take care fellas my bro it's all about me seeing it all heard it all oh what you know about me